Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Unpundit Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cornett. I am joined today with Patty McGuire in the, uh, the, the co-chair seat, joining me to be co-host. Welcome. Welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you. I, I just realized this morning, though, we, uh, we had a, a bit of a... We took uh, Doug Fashing's name in vain on the first episode, and he came back and was a co-host, and uh, yours was mentioned recently. That was and a here passing you, reference, I think. And, uh, and and here you are. So, uh, so uh, no, it was, it was it was very it was fairly well in vain, I think. Um, so if if you hear your name mentioned and see your phone call, ringing soon, you'll know why. So um, Patty's a, a somebody that I've known for a long, long time, and uh, I don't know if he'll remember the the precise moment that we met. It sticks out in my mind uh, because I was it was the year was two thousand. I had just been elected as an alternate to the Democratic Convention, and it got raised uh, into being a, uh, an actual full-fledged delegate because our Attorney General at the time couldn't go, and there was an opening. And I, the late I got Hardy to, Myers? The late Hardy Myers, right. So um, he gifted me with his uh, – actually, he just resigned his position going, and the delegation voted me uh, to replace him. There was only one other ultimate there, alternate there that day, and uh, – um, he endorsed me for that, so it was not like a, a slog. But I'd been elected delegate, and uh, I knew I was very important. And we were at our meeting before, right before we went to Los Angeles, and I had never met Patty McGuire. I had heard the name, um, and I, I kind of had in mind that he was a an important guy. You had worked for the Clinton administration, is that yes? Okay. Yes. So here he is. He's the he was our delegation whip, which. Um, for, I, for Al Gore. For Al Gore, exactly, which I thought was this really important role <laughs> um, in my mind. I ended up doing it for John Kerry four years later and realized that uh, Patty had drew the short straw, as I did four years later. You get a cool vest. You get <laughs> <laughs> and you get to sit by the phone, which is cool. The, the kind of vest if you wear it, if you work at a, if you work at a warehouse, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm qualified to work at Staples now with, since I have the cool orange vest. So I was interning at the time. With uh, with this kid whose uh, father was a big donor, and uh, I remember approaching Patty and with every bit of authority in my voice, saying, "I'm Jesse Cornett. I'm a delegate, and this is the guy that should be our delegation page because we got to just name somebody." And I told you that's what you should do, and you just said, "Oh yeah, that's that's the plan." Um, kind of matter of factly, and I'm like, "Wait." I think Noah's dad had talked to me about that in advance, so you know, giving you giving you that plum was pretty easy because I think it was a done deal I, already. It, I th- I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, the following, who was it? About two weeks later, um, I remember I had stayed somewhere else in Los Angeles the first night, I think, to save money. Then I get up and I I pick up the Los Angeles Times on a Sunday morning, and the front page has this picture of Patty. And there's a headline that just says, Patty's a hack. And, and proud, proud of, of it. it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I now, now describe myself as a washed up political hack. And now elections geek. So um, I, I've moved on from the hackdom into geekdom. You see, other people describe me as a washed up hack, not myself. I still, <laughs> I'm still clinging. <laughs> Hence the podcast. <laughs> so I guess I'm, I'm back to clinging here. Too. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so uh, uh, I kind of wanted to mention a, a couple of things about uh, about Patty's background. He was a deputy secretary of state. Patty was deputy secretary of state um, 
and they hired me to work in the office. And I had a little something to do with that. Yes, yeah, so uh, I think more than a little something. <laughs> and now I'm getting repaid for that, I guess, for the, the, <laughs> the thrill of being co-host. But you know, when, when Steve March comes and, and co-teaches my classes with me once a term, he says he's still being punished for his decision. So <laughs> I like the way you look at things. <laughs> Deputy Secretary of State here, a Clinton administration appointee before that. You were also the executive director of the Federal Voting Assistance Program, and I know a scant about a bit about that, and that's helping uh, defense uh, folks and expats. Right. So tell us uh, about that. Yeah, uh, deputy director of the Federal Voting Assistance Program, part of the Department of Defense. I gave you a promotion. Interestingly, well, interestingly enough, um, I mean, really should be in the State Department, but um, in the State Department, it wouldn't have any money at all. And being in the Defense Department, we had more money than we knew what to do with. But this is the federal agency that works to make sure that citizens living overseas, service members and their spouses, families get to vote wherever they are in the world. And my job was to be liaison to the 8,000 stateside election officials. So, um, and fun fact about 8,000 election officials, about 40% of those are in Wisconsin and Michigan. Wow. Okay. <laughs> The, uh, I had no idea it was that, that many. It's, yeah. Well, there are 1,860-something in Wisconsin alone, so, uh, because they vote by township. They vote by, okay. And so every little town, and there's some really dinky little towns with you know, 30 voters, and they are their own election jurisdiction. So. so, in the last presidential election, there was precisely one state to go through a full recount of their election, and that was a state with, that already had 1,600 people working on it. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh -huh. Right, 1,600 jurisdictions. Yeah. Right? Wow. So, you know, I mean, obviously, the city of Milwaukee, it's more than one person, but in some of these towns with you know, 50 voters, 30 voters, it's Marge, who works at the insurance company, and you, you look at the list of email addresses for um, election officials in Wisconsin, and it'll be, you know, Marge at jo Johansson Insurance will be the email address for the election official in some little dinky little town in Wisconsin. So and it's clearly not Marge's day job. And she'd love to quote you on a new life insurance policy. As well. Exactly. <laughs> nice multitasking work there. And and now you uh, you work in the private sector elections business. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a certified elections geek. Like a lot of people in the elections business sort of stumbled into this by accident when Bill Bradbury became Secretary of State and I went to work for him. I'd been involved in the political side and now work for a private company that sells voter registration systems to jurisdictions. Fascinating. Not Diebold. I <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. We are here in, in Portland. By the way, I joke about wherever we're at being the, um, the world headquarters, the Unpunded Podcast <laughs> world headquarters. Do you know where that came from? I do not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like I should. In the, <laughs> in the year 2010, I ran an ill-fated campaign. <laughs> And one of the guys that helped me a whole lot on my campaign, you, um, had on your... <laughs> Which your, may have something to do with the ill-fated part, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that lies in the candidate, given the numbers. In your car, in your prehistoric TomTom or, or Garmin or whatever it was uh, back in the time, it was listed as Jesse World Headquarters. And so um, I've always wanted to call something World Headquarters since, and so this became it. That's not true. Like, everything in my phone now and my, my ways is listed as, like... Patty McGuire World Headquarters. <laughs> um, so I'm glad to have provided the inspiration for that. Hey, a little bit of everything. So uh, today we're going to talk about a couple of different things. 
Um, primarily two different things. Um, first half of the episode, we're going to have Matt Keating. Matt Keating is a relatively new DNC member. He's going to be on with us. We're going to spend a few minutes talking to him about uh, specifically the results of the DNC chair race. Uh, moments before we press record, we found out that Thomas Perez had won. Thomas Perez was the Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He was an assistant attorney general for civil affairs. He was a, he was in charge of the civil rights division. Civil rights. Um, and uh, I, I think Patty and I, we have our disagreements on politics, and I, we were kind of joking about a couple things before pressing record, and I, I wanted to say this is almost like a, a retired WWE wrestling match where... Old fat guys who used to be <laughs> athletes. <laughs> where we, we may disagree, uh, but the, the disagreements are minor, and geez, they're largely for show, it feels like. And, and we're never disagreeable about our disagreements. In fairness, Patty's never disagreeable about it. I have a problem with that on rare occasions. With each other, anyway. Exactly. So, um, Thomas Perez, uh, I I may not today say universally glowing things about him. Uh, one, um, let's talk positive, really, just quickly. He's a Dominican American, becoming the first Dominican American to be elected to run the DNC. He was running against somebody who is Muslim. I think that as a party, those were our two choices. In itself, speaks volumes about, uh, about how we've uh, how we've come along. But given his experience, and I might even say lack of experience. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that I see that our Democratic Party is has learned enough lessons moving forward. I found it interesting that looking through Chair Perez's background, he attempted to run for Maryland Attorney General back in the day. He was disqualified from the ballot because he didn't have enough experience as a lawyer. That's not a requirement in all states. It is there. His background also shows no experience in big D democratic politics at all, unlike uh, the very active uh, Keith Ellison. So he's in charge of an organization that he hasn't had a lot of experience with. I'm not entirely sure that that's a bad thing. Um, That could be a refreshing thing. But he's an East Coast liberal, and that's something that a lot of folks in the party maybe want to shy away from moving forward. But I think the most interesting thing about this election is that... um, there were the vote was two thirteen to two hundred on the first ballot. The second ballot was two thirty four to two hundred. There was another candidate on the first ballot. So Keith Ellison picked up precisely zero votes going from ballot A to ballot B. Uh, interesting point. I've mentioned, I think, on the show before. I've actually had the the opportunity to to, to talk to Thomas Perez before when he was. At the Civil Rights Division, he was investigating things related to pattern and practices of abuse by the Portland Police Department, and I was interviewed by him for that. Interesting discussion. I've got a lot of respect for him. Uh, He wasn't my pick. I think we're going to hear, when we talk to Matt here in a couple minutes, a lot about unity. I couldn't agree more. You've actually met Perez in the past. Right. When I was working for the Federal Voting Assistance Program, organizations that deal with elections, the National Association of Secretaries of State and the National Association of State Election Directors and the Election Center would have meetings in Washington, and the federal agencies would come together and talk to elections people from around the country. And a couple times I was on panels with then... Deputy Attorney General Perez, or Assistant Attorney General Perez, a great guy, wicked smart. I think for me, I am pleased to have a chair for whom this will be their first job, not their second job. I think you know the record of people who have tried to be members of Congress and chairs of the DNC simultaneously has not been stellar, and so I think... I'm pleased about that. In fairness, Congressman Ellison did say that he intended to resign his seat if he got the position not that long. And I think, I mean, as as a as a Democratic centrist, I am pleased that the person who is at least 
perceived of as the more moderate of the two, though you know, I hardly think that Tom Perez is um, anything other than a pretty much a card-carrying liberal. I mean, he, he was uh, on the Montgomery County Council in Montgomery, Montgomery County, Maryland is one of the most liberal places in the country. He lives in Tacoma Park, Maryland, where I lived when I worked for the Clinton administration. And I mean, it is in Montgomery County, or in, in Tacoma Park, you don't even need to be a U.S. citizen to vote in municipal elections. You only need to be a resident. Um, so it's a pretty lefty place. The, wow, pe- that's the, fascinating. Pe- the People's Republic of Tacoma Park is <laughs> it's, it's sort of like Southeast Portland in its own little city. Except it actually lives up to those. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> so before we move on and uh, try to get uh, Matt on the phone, there was a move to make Keith Ellison, you said you read the New York Times before walking in, uh, to make Keith Ellison one of the vice chairs of the party, right? Right. I, yeah, and I don't know the details. I mean, I, there, was, there was a sentence about that, that, that Perez had done, had done something, I presume, as part of his acceptance of, of moving to make Ellison a vice chair of the party. Let's see what my friend, Mr. Google, can tell us about that topic. Okay. So it we does. It uh, uh, the Hill reports 52 minutes ago that Perez appoints Allison deputy DNC chair. Oh, deputy so. DNC, so it's not a vice chair. What's the distinction? Do you I know? I have no idea. I think well, it's I think it's a made up thing. But. That's a great question for Matt. Let's get see if we can raise him. All right, we've got Matt Keating on the line with us, and we only have a few minutes with Matt, so I'm going to go through uh, the background really quickly, then I'll post some information. Matt Keating is from Eugene, Oregon. He is a member of the Democratic National Committee. Right now, he is in Atlanta, where he just stepped out of the voting. Um, So we have uh, Thomas Perez as the DNC chair. Uh, You back the other candidate. How are you feeling right now? Hey, Jesse, um, I'm on the floor here in Atlanta for our 2017 winter meeting, and if it's a little loud, I, I apologize, but... It's a good uh, loud. I, I do want to, congrat- I want to congratulate uh, Secretary Tom Perez, our newly elected DNC chair. Oregon uh, strongly delivered for Keith Ellison, and we were proud to stand in, in Congressman Ellison's corner and proud to support the work of our newly elected chair. And I want to give kudos to Tom for suspending the rules and nominating Keith Ellison deputy chair, and that's unprecedented, and the partnership of those two leaders moving forward, that's going to be critical in 2018, 2020, and beyond. But Oregon strongly delivered for Keith, and now it's time for us to strongly deliver to Democrats nationally, take back the House, the Senate, and the White House come 2020. So do you, can you understand the distinction between deputy chair and vice chair? So we're still going to be electing vice chairs, and uh, this is a, a yet-to-be-defined uh, role, so I'll, I'll let uh, Congressman Ellison and, and, and Chair Perez work that out. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but the fact that we've got the energy of those two working together, uh, that's going to be great for the Democratic Party moving forward. Neat. How many DNC meetings have you had the chance to attend so far? This isn't your first, is it? No. No, we, we got in late Wednesday, spent all day Thursday having lunches and, and, and one-on-ones with candidates. And Friday, we were gaveled in and had our General Assembly and, and uh, attended the LGBT caucus uh, and the Western caucus. And a good chunk of our delegation, of course, attended the, uh, the, the Women's Caucus. Um, uh, there's a lot of great activity and energy uh, revolving around the conversation of expanding voting rights and access to voting. Oregon has a really great model, you know, vote by mail, automatic voter registration. And all around this convention hall, folks come up to us and they're thrilled that we're from the Beaver State where you can vote by mail. They know the successes that we have electing Democrats 
all up and down the ticket in Oregon, and we need to replicate those successes nationally and give folks more access to participate in the process rather than what the, the Republicans and the far right are trying to do by limiting access with voter ID or, or ticking folks off the rolls. Every American needs to have the opportunity to cast their vote in every election. Do you have any, with in terms of the vote, the second ballot, 100% of the votes appeared to break um, Chair Perez's way. Um, what was going on there? That's curious. All I know is the votes that I, or the vote I cast and the votes that our delegation cast from, from Oregon. Um, you know, there, there were so, there's, you know, Sally Boyd and Brown uh, had 12 votes. Uh, she endorsed uh, Keith Ellison. Um, you know, obviously it looks like there was some, some movement there, and maybe some folks weren't committed on multiple rounds. I don't know how that works uh, with delegation, with delegates from other states. All I know is that I delivered and Oregon delivered. But now that that election is over, I want to move on and get to the real work of, of seeing how we can be helpful to bring our Oregon values and our Oregon best practices to the national conversation to help share Tom Perez, elect Democrats all up and down the ticket in 2018 and 2020 and beyond. Excellent. Could you give us really quickly, and then I'll let you go, a quick background on how you decided to become a, a, a DNC member and how you became a DNC member? So I, I've, I've been to three national conventions now. Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders in 2016. I proudly supported our nominee, Secretary Clinton. But I don't want us to repeat the mistakes of previous elections lost, especially the 2016 election cycle. I want to bring best practices from our great state of Oregon uh, to the national stage, and I think it's incredibly important that we take back the House and the Senate to get big money out of politics and give folks uh, access to participate in the process uh, and ultimately have someone who occupies the White House that we all can be proud of. And, and so the lessons learned in 2016 uh, and the painful bruises we took, that spurred me and, and inspired me to run and serve on the DNC. I ha I'm happy I've, I've done so, and, and I'm happy to continue serving in this capacity. And now the real work, let's roll up our sleeves. Exactly. Let's register some voters. Let's get some Democrats elected. Exactly. Well, I, I really appreciate the time in the middle of a, a hectic day for you. And when you get back to the fair of the coast, I look forward to having a beverage with you and getting further caught up. For now, I'll let you get back inside. I appreciate it, Jesse. Cheers from Atlanta. And uh, our, our entire delegation says hi and, and thank you much for all you do. Sounds great. Take care. Well, fun to have somebody live and in person from the DNC meeting. We're actually, the theory on this is we post this podcast on Tuesday mornings. Um, unless I drink too much on Monday nights, like last week. <laughs> in which case, I posted it on Wednesday morning. But in, in fairness, there was a holiday in there, so. <laughs> <laughs> so Wednesday really was Tuesday. Thank you very much. So I, I, um, I'm going to try to post this one today, if not today, tomorrow, just because I think we've got a couple of timely uh, topics here. It was interesting hearing from him. My, I had a perspective, and I think what I was going to say, if... Keith Ellison prepared as um, if, you know, I was going to be cheeky and joke, hey, the Democrats tried to steal the election, so Bernie stole the Democrats. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> that's you would disagree with that point, and I would, I would agree with you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I think the idea that uh, the DNC as an organization somehow denied Bernie Sanders the nomination when Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Bernie Sanders did is to me laughable because 
A, because of the three million more votes, and B, because I think we have just seen in November how influential the DNC is in turning elections. I mean, the fact that 68% of the state legislative bodies in this country are controlled by Republicans, I think, gives you a window on how effective the DNC is in turning the outcome of elections. I mean, not not to refight the primary fight, but I, I do get a little irritated by the former Bernie supporters talking about how he would have won, because I think that's ridiculous. And Shoulda, coulda, woulda. I don't play that game. This was an election about personalities. A big personality won. Bernie had a bigger personality, but he also spent a heck of a lot of time talking about really intricate and important policy issues that may have detracted from that. So I, and, I don't... And he also was part of a campaign where there was not a single ad, negative ad about him, despite a 50-year career of material that would have been perfect for negative ads. And you can be assured, had he been the nominee, that the Republican, the Republican Party would not have been hands-off on advertising against him the way Hillary Clinton was. The And I was in the room in the media center, not in the room, room in Flint, when they debated in February and Bernie made his I'm tired of hearing about the damn emails comment. He set the stage for it to be a a fairly clean race. I tend to agree that the DNC did not rig this race, but I found what they did to be incredibly distasteful. Sure. Um, It was, I mean, it was stupid, if nothing else. Good thing I've never done something stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've done two or three stupid things since I woke up today. The thing that rubbed me the wrong way the most, and this this comes as somebody um, who doesn't practice any religion, going after, you know, the questioning is religion, potentially using that in southern states to me just showed this shocking ignorance in the highest levels of leadership in our party. And they didn't do that. They didn't do it. I mean, they but having to, that they, discussion... They talked about it internally. I mean, there, but there's no, there's not a shred of evidence that they did anything to benefit Hillary Clinton or hurt Bernie Sanders. Yes, there was chatter on email, but I think that's pretty indicative of the DNC is they chattered and didn't do a damn thing. Still not very, not a, not a good warm fuzzy. No, it's, not at all. Let's shift. There's a couple of other things. What else happened this week? Uh, Milo, I'm still not going to try to say his last name, resigned from his position at, uh, at Breitbart. When, he lost when, a huge when, when book deal. When your life... When your life is such a train wreck that Breitbart dumps you, that's pretty low. The the thing that I love, so this is somebody who has described Islam as cancer, claimed uh, transgender people were mentally ill, lists himself on his own Facebook page as a supervillain. I mean, he's somebody that, I mean, he's he was like the Seinfeld of conservative politics. He, he just, I mean, there was famous for no reason. Yeah. And it really yeah. just snowballed. Until this lovely 16-year-old girl who named Julia, basically... In Edmonton or somewhere. Exactly, exactly. So CPAC, which we'll talk about next for just a brief minute, happened this week. He was going to be a keynote speaker. We talked about this already on the show, but even though this information was publicly available, they still invited him. Even without this particular, the, the pedophilia comment, this particular person may not be best suited for this venue or for any venue with... A microphone or more than zero other people at any given time but they did and it took a 16 year old girl from canada named julia who started digging who found this this comment so good for you julia i i think you should i think you should put up like an anonymous gofundme for 
like your college through a PhD program or something along those lines. Well, she's Canadian, so it's probably paid for by the government already. Good Lord. That's true. <laughs> really, uh, really interesting uh, with all the reporters in the world that it was a 16-year-old girl that found this out. So so much for the mainstream media. Ex the lamestream media, right? <laughs> there was a... Uh, yeah, there was a disturbing this, this week. Sean Spicer had a, a session with a bunch of reporters and... He actually excluded a lot of people. Right. The fake news organizations like the New York Times and the BBC and the LA Times and the Washington Post and CNN, I think, were all excluded. And then apparently the the news had not made it through the newsroom because there have been a whole number of news organizations since then that have said, had we known, we wouldn't have gone, which is sort of interesting that what happens when you have a news gaggle without the gaggle. I guess C-SPAN would have covered it, but that's about it. If there's nobody there other than the what the 18-year-old kid that asked the one question that Trump liked about isn't Melania doing a great job as first lady uh, in his last press conference, he'd probably be there. But other than that, the real press has all said they would not have gone. All right, so Patty McGuire is here with me again. The joys of learning how to podcast are sometimes things happen that I don't understand. Patty and I, after talking about a handful of things, ended our discussion with a great uh, couple of minutes on the future of the Democratic Party, something that I think is near and dear to both of our hearts. I prefaced it then, and I'll preface it now, which is Patty is a, considers himself a moderate Democrat, but or a centrist Democrat, I think is the word that he would use. But I cautioned on Saturday when we first recorded that by no means does that mean he's a, a casual Democrat. Uh, very much a lifelong, loyal Democrat. So, Patty, you had some great words about the future of the Democratic Party, and to the extent that you can do it 48-plus hours later, can we reconstruct that? <laughs> sure, I'll try. Um, I, Jesse, I think you know my concern about the future of the party is we don't take Hillary Clinton's loss as an excuse to lurch to the left because I don't think that's where electoral victory is going to come. And I think, you know, in my, gosh, going on 40 years in electoral politics, I mean, one of the things I've learned is winning is better than losing. And if you look at the Democratic presidents in my lifetime, starting with John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, they have all been from the center, center left. None of them have been from the far left of the Democratic Party. And... When you look at the two candidate, two nominees of our party who have been from the far left, um, and I think arguably three, but I'll go for two, and Mondale and McGovern, they both lost by historic margins. And I don't believe that our party is going to find electoral victory in a national election by lurching to the left. Uh, and I think you know, the thing we need to remember is that we can't win a national election without the votes of working people. And we need to give them hope, and we need to talk about jobs. And I think you know one of the things that happened in 2016 was that people thought the Democratic Party was more concerned about who got to use what bathroom than whether they were going to get a job or not. And there's been a fundamental change in the economy in my lifetime. And you know, when uh, 50 years ago, somebody could have a high school education and support a family. You know, one parent 
that have a high school education and support a whole family. And now parents, if you're in that kind of situation, it's going to be two parents working two or three jobs each. And it's a scary time. And we need to be, we as a party, need to be talking to people about hope and opportunity and you know, both things that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama talked about and convinced people that they cared about. And I think that's the key to electoral victory. Interesting. I, I think there's a lot. Is there somebody, there's nobody, I, I don't remember if we got into this. Who are the candidates that you're looking at today that you think might be able to break through? And I feel it's incredibly early. I mean, if anyone would have predicted Bill Clinton this far in advance of the 1992 election or Barack Obama, uh, even in, well, I guess there was some, there were some early signs with him. Um, even though he didn't win, Bernie Sanders' uh, uh, electoral success was notable. That being predicted a year in advance wouldn't have happened. But this far out, is there anyone that you're seeing that you think could be the messenger that we need right now? Well, at the moment, I am quite smitten with Tammy Duckworth. She's from the middle of the country, not from the edges. She beat a Republican incumbent, albeit a, a weak Republican incumbent. But in a year where darn few weak Republicans, she beat a Republican incumbent. I think she's a, she's a war hero. She is biracial. She's young. She's, you know, I, I think she, she looks like America. And I think she looks like an awful lot. I think she's the sort of candidate that could put the Obama coalition back together again in a way that Hillary Clinton couldn't. There's a lot um, so of that's 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 a name. There's a lot of talk about Hillary Clinton again, Joe Biden again, Bernie Sanders again. I don't think any of them are going to be the savior of the party. I think you're probably right. Somebody like Tammy Duckworth could probably make a bigger impact. Look, I, you know, I'm 57 years old. Barack Obama's 56. It is my sincere hope that party never nominates someone older than me again. And all of those people that you named are considerably older than me. And I think I mean, part, part of the enthusiasm among young people around Barack Obama was that, and I think one of the challenges that Hillary Clinton faced was that she isn't. And had a 25-year record. So you know, my 27-year-old daughter, her the first thing, her first awareness, she knew about the Clintons. And so that the Clintons had been part of her entire life. You know, I think that made the, the hope and change argument difficult. And I think it, it was hard to get excited about for a lot of young people. And so, you know, once again, to, to paraphrase John F. Kennedy, that you know, the torch has been permanently passed the, I'm, just, I'm just letting that soak in, Patty. I, I think when we first met, your daughter wasn't in junior high school yet, so just doing the math on this. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're fast approaching 10 minutes, so I want to cut it off. This is exactly the kind of discussion that I wanted to have, and I feel like it might be a little disjointed just because we talked on Saturday, there was a pause. But this is the portion of the conversation that I really appreciate. Oh. So I wanted to see if we could cool. uh, relive it to a certain extent. It, it, we've had a, a fun couple days, even since recording that last little uh, little bit in political time. Uh, our president announced that health care is complex. Apparently that's a thing now. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody knew it. <laughs> uh, who would have known? I mean... <laughs> 
Um, so it, it's it, the the timestamp of an episode is important just because things change all the time in the political realm. But this is fascinating, interesting. It's late on a Monday night, and I really appreciate you taking the time both on Saturday in person here in Portland and presumably from, excuse me, your paradise home in Harstein Island today. Um, And I will look forward to talking to you more soon. Thank you so very much. Excellent. Thanks, Jesse. Have a great night. All right. Welcome to the last segment on today's episode of the Unpundit Podcast. I'm Jesse Grant here with Casey Houlihan. We are going to spend the last few minutes of today talking about marijuana. This week, the White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, made a comment. This is on the heels of our Attorney General, who is known to be U.S. Attorney General Beauregard, is is his middle name, and that's all I can seem to refer to him as on on this podcast. And I hate name-calling, but that's his middle name. I think it was actually... fair game. I think it was Seth Meyers on his show a couple of weeks ago that said in the South, Beauregard is French for... Y'all ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> so he, he's been very anti-pot, and he made a comment along the lines of recently, if, if the American people don't want me to enforce pot laws, that they should change the laws. More recently, yesterday, this week, Sean Spicer said, when you see something like the opioid addiction crisis blossoming in so many states in this country, the last thing we should be doing is encouraging people. There is still a federal law that we need to abide by when it comes to recreational marijuana and drugs of that nature. So I, I find myself, uh, they, they cite the cite this statistic of 91 people dying in the United States every single day from opioid uh, addiction. Um, I, um, I, I've never talked about this before, kind of anywhere, so openly at least, uh, in, in very close-knit circles. I had a minor procedure and I was given Vicodin a few years ago. I loved it. And I never acquired it illegally, um, but I certainly abused it. And um, I had a real turning point moment in my life a a few years ago um, and stopped and never was a a heavy addict, but uh, certainly abused. So I kind of get how it's dangerous and addictive. And I have also smoked pot before. Not something that, uh, even for me, as legal as it is, it's still not comfortable to talk about for some reason. Um, And I really don't smoke pot. Because I've discovered there's zero strain that exists, and I don't care what you say, Casey. Sorry, I'll introduce you here in just a minute. I don't care what you say. There's no strain that is not either going to make a combination of me go to sleep or eat, or both of those at the same time. It can be done. So Casey here today, Casey Hulan is the executive director of Orca, the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis. Uh, And I wanted to have a conversation with him about the dangerous um, things that the administration is saying. We've talked about it on the show before. How are you and your members feeling about this? Thanks for having me, Jesse. Appreciate it. And, I mean, it's deeply troubling, some of these statements that we've heard from the administration. Certainly uh, counterintuitive, given their firm states' rights stance when it comes to some other issues regarding civil rights, and certainly what we've seen this past week with the transgender bathroom issue and rescinding that federal order. It's alarming. It's troubling. It's very unclear what happens next. Uh, There have been a lot of pushes in Congress recently to allow some type of amendment to the appropriations bill to provide some level of protection in states where it's been legal to do so. Uh, There was an amendment that was adopted a few years ago, the Rohrbacher Farm Amendment, which basically prevented any federal monetary resources from going towards enforcement of federal drug laws in states where it was legal for medical purposes. There's also an amendment that's been supported now by Earl Blumenauer's Congressional Caucus to add that same appropriations bill amendment for recreational states as well. And if that happens, the federal government would still have the authority to come in and 
raid places where it was legal and states that had determined that they'd like to pursue a regulation system rather than prohibition, um, but they'd have to do it with volunteers and on the weekend. So it seems very unlikely that they would probably do that. So that would pretty well halt the federal crackdown that they're alleging may happen. Uh, but as it stands, they have the resources, they have the budget if they were to tackle that. I think one of the things that comes into conflict with that is also their firm stance on immigration. And certainly if they were going to try to execute their plans that they've enumerated fully there, that would be very problematic for them to do so. There's just not enough federal agents to enforce both to the extent that they've promised. So in that capacity, I think some are somewhat reassured in the industry, but there's obviously certainly quite a bit of turmoil still. And also, if you did make marijuana illegal again, mm-hmm. or started enforcing those laws at the federal level, wouldn't you, in fact, be creating the kind of drug lord that you're trying to eradicate right now? Yeah, and this is something that we're still struggling with on the state level, too, as we continue to define our legal regime for regulated marijuana sales here. The illicit market here in Oregon has been vibrant for several decades. It's been known to be a large export state. This is not news to many, and there's still a great deal of work to do on that. We've got some statistics from internal economic analyses within the industry that show in 2016, closing in on 40% of the state's domestic sales, not counting out-of-state exports, were still purchased in the illegal marketplace. So there's still quite a bit of work that we have to undermine a lot of this, which is hurting the revenues that the state is collecting for taxes, and it's hurting these small businesses that are trying to create more jobs in this legal industry and pay taxes as well. So there's still definitely a lot to do, and anything that raises that bar or increases barriers to access for these things through regulated channels is absolutely just a boon to anybody in, let's say, off-license distribution circles. In fact, certainly some of the efforts to add more red tape to some of the cannabis regulations that we've seen here in the state at the Capitol, we've been trying to make sure people understand would be the drug dealer stimulus plan of 2017 if they were to pass some of these. So. There's still a long way to go on both regards, but this federal and state conflict needs to be addressed sooner than later, even as President Obama said in the final weeks of his presidency, with the number of states changing these policies and the rate at which they're doing so, it's ultimately untenable. I read a a statistic that there are more marijuana shops in Oregon than Starbucks. I think it's actually more than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. That's a fascinating statistic, and I guess I, I sort of wonder where the government would start? Well, anything that we've seen from the new administration so far has been primarily a show of force, I think. Certainly their immigration order seems to have been an effort to test the extent to which the courts will rein in any executive orders that they try to put out there. Most of the enforcement actions weren't even really necessarily aimed at detaining or deporting very many people as much as it was to create public outcry to make sure that agents were visibly out in the streets, to make sure that they instilled the public fear that it was pretty clear they were after. And I think that to that extent you can make the same case for marijuana, It's basically already set up such that state and federal law enforcement can't really enforce a lot of these these things in states where it's been decided that they'd like to pursue a legalized approach. So how they plan to do that with something like five to 8,000 federal officers, depending which agencies you rope in, but assuming you take DEA, FBI, and anybody else that would be involved in that from the DOJ, you're talking about less than 8,000 people. So you're a membership organization. How are your members feeling this week? What's the feedback that you've received? Are folks worried? I think that would be an understatement, Jesse. I think that people are very concerned. We had not received any indication from this since Trump became the president. And before that, during the campaign, he'd taken virtually every conceivable stance on the issue of cannabis regulations that we've ever seen, whether that's getting hard on drugs and hard on crime, whether that's being 100% behind medical marijuana, whether that's allowing it to be a completely state's rights issue, or whether it's saying that we should legalize all drugs. Those are all positions that he's taken at various points in the past. 
Personally, it's very unclear what his position is. I mean, he's got a compelling personal narrative about his brother succumbing to alcoholism, so I believe that he may be a teetotaler. But uh, this would be the first time that we've had a president in office that had never tried marijuana, if that's true, in almost 25 years. Comparing alcohol and marijuana is not a good comparison. They're very different substances. So developing a position based on somebody being an alcoholic is, from a public policy perspective, scary. Frankly, developing a, a position based on one anecdote alone itself is a little scary. Again, deeply troubling. And this is clearly a guy who's made it a point to create his worldview and cultivate that based on, let's say, a very small data set from what little we've seen of him so far. It's deeply alarming for the people in the industry that are trying to build some of these small businesses. And in addition to all the other hurdles, like not always being able to have a bank account reliably or being... Really? That's actually something that we've made a lot of progress on here in Oregon. And our association's actually partnered with a local credit union out of Salem to work with folks anywhere in the state to make sure that they can get bank accounts. I saw that, and that's MAPS Credit that's Union? That's MAPS Credit Union. Um, it, uh, it's a bold move, because I know MBank did it, and federal regulators effectively made them stop. So the issue is there's an additional set of protocols that you need to follow to make sure that there's additional compliance steps taken for these cannabis businesses, and it's very costly for the financial institution to do so. They have to put up a fair amount of money as part of that process, and most have opted not to do that. MAPS is charging people for these checking and savings account upwards of six grand a year per and so they're able to collect the revenues necessary for making sure that they pay that. Yeah, I mean, that would be a worthwhile expense if you're a cannabis retailer. And certainly if you're the only bank in town that's doing it, or in the state as it happens. I mean, how are your, uh, the, the, I've talked about this on the podcast before, how are they paying taxes? I mean, are they at the revenue department with big envelopes full of cash? In many cases, that is what's happening, yes. And they're actually all being made to drive to Salem, too, because that's one of the few places that they're able to deposit it. So no matter where your business is located every month, you need to make sure that you deliver those taxes to the capital, um, or to the Department of Revenue, rather. And that's something that's also problematic. A lot of these regulations are not designed for these businesses to succeed. They were designed so that the state could put together a licensing regime quickly. And that's what we've done. And now we're seeing a lot of operational inefficiencies that are, as a baseline, making it difficult to operate these businesses normally before we even get to a lot of the other federal hurdles based on the state and federal conflicts. So it's definitely, as a baseline, much more difficult than running, say, a coffee shop or a you know, popsicle stand. But it's, on top of that, more costly. And on top of this now, highly uncertain as to what the future will be in the next 3 to 6 to 12 months. So before we end here, I wanted to ask, so I, I started saying something, and it seems so outlandish, um, when I was talking about it, but OLCC is licensing recreational dispensaries. The state is accepting taxes. The state is a member of organized crime under federal law. That's correct. Like what's to stop the federal government? And I know this is ludicrous and it's not going to happen, but what's to stop the FBI from arresting or ATF or whoever would do that? Uh, Governor Kate Brown on RICO charges. You bring up an entirely valid point, Jesse. Um, these are some of the larger considerations. This was discussed at length during the legislative session last year that the state is, in many ways, laundering this money for these businesses that, according to federal law, are violating the Controlled Substances Act in many different ways. And that's something that does place a fair amount of liability on the state. And it's not just the money handling either. So let's try to end this on a positive note. It's a scary topic, and I know when I was in high school, uh, I lived in a suburb of Seattle, Washington, and there were some bad guys who you could go and you could you could buy pot from. And also, by the way, you could get cocaine or pills or probably just about anything you wanted. The danger that I saw, 
and developed early opinions about pot were because of the illegal trade and the dangers of the trade. So your folks have really brought that out of the shadows. They've made it safe. They've made it legal. That's a great thing. Let's just hope they don't get pushed back into the shadows. I mean, one of the things that we've seen from this little experiment that we've been conducting here in our laboratory of democracy is that regulation works far better than prohibition by any metric you would use. Public safety, cost, tax revenue. It's a win-win-win. It hits the triple bottom line. It's better for people. People like it and support the policy once it's in place. And exactly to your point, you don't walk into a licensed liquor store and have the guy behind the counter go, psst, you know what else we got in the back? Because they're on tape and there's laws against that and they know that they'll lose their job or their license or jeopardize their business. The same applies to these cannabis retailers. So they take this very seriously. The state's security requirements, tracking requirements, inventory management requirements are all very strict, and any veering away from those protocols will result in an administrative action, and they don't want to risk their business. So these are people that are taking the safety of people very seriously when it comes to making sure these products don't fall in the hands of minors or people who shouldn't have them. So that's why I think it's a lot more important that we see this type of system fleshed out further across the country, to your point, so that especially children don't have access to these dealers that are not asking for ID that are not paying taxes into the state coffers, and that are undermining these legal businesses. So let's end it on a, a very serious note. Um, I think that, I mean, in, in deference to your position, um, I, I didn't really want to ask any hard-hitting questions, but I'm going to shift and I'm going to do that. So all this is fine and dandy. We're creating a lot of jobs. It's a good industry for the state. But let's talk about the downsides. Um, I mean, Let's face it, there were, well, you would know the statistic better than me. How many marijuana-related overdoses were there last year? I believe that would be zero. No, I mean, um, okay. Well, how many, then how many marijuana-related domestic violence calls were there last year? I don't have the exact figures, but I'm certainly confident that they pale in comparison to those related to alcohol or other drugs. All righty, folks, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to The Unpundit. I'm your host, Jesse Cornett. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Twitter. We're at Unpundit Podcast or like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Unpundit Podcast. And please tell all your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, heck, even unwitting strangers on the street that they should listen to us as well. A huge thank Christian John Minor for composing and performing our theme song. Aloha!
I think the number is actually still zero. It very well could be. Okay. <laughs> Casey Houlihan. Happy to be here, Jesse. <laughs>